0: Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book about some area of world sport and we talk with the author. For this episode, we welcome back to the podcast Tony Collins, professor of history at De Montfort University in England. Tony has been a guest twice before on the podcast when we discussed his social history of English rugby union and his book on sport and capitalism. For this visit, we're discussing Tony's latest book, The Oval World, A Global History of Rugby, first published in 2015 by Bloomsbury and just out recently in paperback. Tony's book builds on more than two decades of research into the history of both rugby codes, union and league, Three of his previous books, on rugby and modern English history, have earned the Aberdare Literary Prize, the annual award of the British Society of Sports History. And with the Oval World, Tony continued this string, earning his fourth book prize. Unlike his previous books, which concentrated on the country that gave birth to rugby, this new work looks at the full, global reach of the sport. From Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, to Italy and France, South Africa, North America, Argentina, and countries in between. Like all of Tony's books, the Oval World combines scholarly rigor with attention to the colorful anecdote, all presented in a readable style. And of course, it's always a pleasure to visit with him about his work. So here's my interview with Tony Collins. It's a pleasure to welcome Tony Collins back to the podcast. Tony, thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Chris, to be back. Yeah, so Tony introduced uh, you introduced yourself and and talked about uh, your your long standing interest in rugby way back when you were first on the podcast, and that was that was six years ago that uh, you made your first appearance on the podcast. So uh, I'll ask you, why don't you refresh our memories and and tell us how your your love for rugby developed and and what led you to become a historian of the sport?
1: Um, it's a long story, and in fact, I, I, I tell a little bit of the story in the introduction to, to the overworld world. Um, I grew up in a part of Britain where rugby, in particular rugby league, is the dominant sport it, it, in uh, uh, a port on the... Um, uh, east Coast called Hull, and it has two professional rugby league teams, uh, one from the west side, uh, the other from the east side. And my family, lot well, in fact, my father's family come from the east side, which is the Hull Kingston Rovers side. So, uh, and he uh, was taken as a young boy by his father, and his father took him. So, I kind of, you know, like soccer in a lot of places, or. Um, you know, baseball in the states—it's uh, just something that uh, was part of the the warp and weft of every, everyday life. But in terms, of, it never really occurred to me to, to study it as an academic subject uh, until much later when. Um, one of the interesting things that I guess, uh, once you get to know a little bit about rugby, one of the questions you ask is, why are the two rubbies? And obviously, as a child growing up in a very rugby league uh, atmosphere, I mean, we never watched rugby union. There was no uh, senior elite level rugby union anywhere near where we lived. Um, but that question, why are the two games called rugby? And when I became, uh, when I started academics today when I started uh, doing my master's uh, studies uh, in the late 1980s, it occurred to me that this is actually a really interesting question because it's it's a split that took place between League and Union in the late 1890s in Britain uh, when questions of social class, commercial entertainment were at the very forefront of society. And uh, it occurred to me that nobody really studied the history of uh, certainly the history of rugby league. There'd been one or two very interesting things done on rugby union particularly in Wales by Gareth Williams um, and so I thought well it, it kind of brought my my own personal uh, uh, history uh, alongside uh, and complemented my academic interests which were late 19th century uh, British social and cultural history. So that's how I start, so I'm in a very lucky position where I'm kind of studying one of the things that is, uh, is both uh, a passion, but also part of, uh, in many ways, part of my family history. And so that resulted. so I did a PhD on, uh, uh, on the birth of rugby league, on the 1895 split, and things just kind of went on from there. In a sense, rugby got, became more and more interesting to me as I learnt more about it, uh, which I guess is how I ended up doing the Oval
0: well, I was going to ask about that. So you've written about, you've written histories of rugby league, you've written about the split, you've written histories of, of uh, rugby union, uh, but this is a book of, of uh, much different scope and much different size. I think you could fit all of your other books inside of the Oval World. And and so what led you to take on a project like this?
1: Um yeah, hubris. Uh, <laughs> what I think. Cause you kind of think there's more to. Can I, can, you know, can I write a book that contains everything I really want to say about rugby? Um, so, it, uh, I think not, One of the things that I discovered when I was writing about rugby in, in Britain, both rugby league and rugby union, is that you can't really discuss it outside of an international context, despite the fact that the games evolved in Britain and were born in Britain um, very quickly they became became seen as part of, um, well, part of the British Empire, and then rugby spread to France, and so then there's a lot lot of um, very interesting material about how uh, Anglo-French rugby reflected that change in Anglo-French relationships at at a political and national level. So all these, so rugby is clearly, as I think most thoughts are, but rugby is clearly... uh, And international sport, it's expanded around the world to, first to the British Empire, then to France, and then to many other countries. So there's a lot of very interesting things to say about that. Um, And I think the other reason why I wanted to do a global history, the book's titled The Global History of Rugby, is... um, It's something that um, I've been very influenced by uh, in a lot of what I've written by Eric Hobsbawm. And one of the things Hobsbawm said maybe 20 years ago was that the really interesting work now is about global history, whether it's politics, uh, society or whatever. And I I think that's increasingly true, partly because we're living in a smaller world, so it's easy to do these things just in terms of the research. But also because simply on a day-to-day level, we're now in a position, you know, if you're a sports fan – you can basically watch pretty much any sport whenever you want, providing you can afford the, uh, the pay TV cost. So, you know, we're living in a global sports world. And I, uh, I thought, well, it, it's a great, it's a really interesting subject. Rugby is a really interesting subject because of its own global nature, but also, again, because of the things that it can tell us about the way that the world um, has changed and is changing from its inception in the 19th century.
0: So you do address these these larger issues in in the book, but something I notice, you know, having read your other books, is uh, you know I would say your other books are more concerned they're they're more social history, and and I recall from talking uh, talking with you before, uh, you see yourself as a social historian, and and rugby, whether league or union. Uh, is the lens through which to view uh, changes and continuity within within society. Uh, and, and in your past books, I recall, uh, you know, thinking particularly of uh, social history of, of English rugby union. I can't recall that you even describe a match. Uh, whereas the Oval World, you're, it's full of match descriptions and accounts of, of uh, important tournaments, and you discuss the players and so forth. So it's, it's a much different book in terms of your approach. And I'll, I'll ask you did you enjoy writing, um, you know, looking at globalization, looking at economics, commercialization, and media? Uh, but this is also a story about, about the sport and the sports development. And uh, did you enjoy that, that change? An approach to, to writing about rugby.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, partly I took that approach because it, it was uh, the, the book's been published by a commercial publisher, so it's it's a trade publication rather than uh, an academic publisher. So their emphasis was slightly different from they wanted a different emphasis from what uh, what I've done in the past. So I quite like that challenge. Um, but, but I guess also the other thing is that. Um, because I'm writing for a wider audience and I'm not uh, you know obviously when you write a, a, a book it's primarily for uh, an academic audience or certainly for people who have some deeper knowledge deep knowledge of history um, in a sense it's not easier but it's different and you you, you speak you know that you speak in the same language mm-hmm. but when you write for a broader audience the thing I found quite difficult was that it's what you take for granted as a historian isn't necessarily taken for granted by the people who are reading it. So the, so I attempted to get around that and overcome that problem by talking about players and matches and being more, if you like, engaged with the... Um, Uh, with the nitty-gritty of the sport, with the the way that the sport is seen and enjoyed by the vast majority of those people who watch it. So that was was quite interesting. And it's a... um, As I say, I find it quite... It's quite a tricky thing to do because... um, it's very easy to get wrapped up in details of matches and descriptions of matches, and it's quite... I, mean, I hope I haven't done this, but to lose the general point, that you, the, the, the more important points you're trying to make about society and politics and culture or whatever, it's, uh, you're always trying to run ahead of yourself to make sure that you're not going too far down the journalistic path. So it was, it, it was quite interesting. The other thing I would say, which I think is a great... Which I didn't realise before I started to write it is that again because of the growth of the internet and the amount of material that is on the internet, um, it's actually possible to watch a lot of these matches. Um, so I was actually so the matches that I wrote about in the early nineteen fifties, I can actually watch most of them on YouTube uh, or at least highlights of them. And the, the thing that, you know they like uh, movie news. Um, <laughs> Type um, type uh, reports of them. So, in that, so that was a really um, really interesting experience to actually see and try and understand how the sport was played 40 50 60 years ago and try and interpret that so it's in a sense it was a, it was a journey of discovery for me both in terms of how to write like that but also in terms of the material that was um, that was available.
0: So the book is, is titled the Overworld as you said it's a, it's a global a global history of rugby and, and one of the key points you make in the book, is that the various codes of football played around the world and, and chiefly American football and Australian football derive not from soccer, but from rugby.
1: Yeah, well, I guess it's a kind of... Uh, it's, an, it's a, I think it's an interesting example of uh, sort of what we might call proto-globalization in the mid-19th century. Although I don't use that term in the book. Um, because the influence of the educational philosophy of rugby school of, uh, of Thomas Arnold and uh, ideas about muscular Christianity were very much represented by rugby school very much rugby school seems very much as the vanguard of these ideas and as those ideas spread around the English-speaking world uh, and those countries that admired the English-speaking world such as France um, rugby went with them um, I mean, the best example of that is the popularity of the book Tom Brown's School Days, which was a huge bestseller um, throughout the English-speaking world and also uh, very popular in France, uh, which to some extent accounts for rubber's popularity in France. Uh, and what I find interesting is that, um, although obviously today we talk about globalization, the way that things can move around the world very quickly, in the English-speaking world in the 19th century, the British Empire and uh, the United States... Um, cultural ideas, uh, which led to, to ideas about sport, also transmitted themselves very quickly. So Tom Brown's school days ended up uh, being used. Uh, I mean, the New york I think it was the New York Times actually reprinted the um, the description of the of the rugby match uh, that's in Tom Brown's school days in in the eighteen seventies before the one of the Harvard Yale games. Um, and, and that was replicated all around the world in Australia, in Melbourne, uh, when Aussie Rules was started developing from 1860. A lot of that was based around the, uh, um, an attempt to, uh, to utilize the ideas of muscular Christianity and Tom Brown's school days in Australia and fashion them for Australian purposes, similarly with New Zealand and South Africa. So it kind of, um, so rugby as a sport had this inbuilt advantage initially over soccer, over the association football code because it was so tightly bound up with ideas about muscular Christianity and because they became very popular uh, in the States and the British Empire rugby became the sport that was initially played however it was always in a state of flux and just as it did in Britain, uh, eventually it split in over, partly over differences in rules as well as questions of professionalism versus amateurism. The rest of the world also started to debate what's the best way to play rugby. And so in North America, in Canada, and the United States, ideas about playing rugby without scrums uh, dominated. Uh, in Australia, with Aussie rules, the offside rule was, uh, was abandoned. And so they're all it's from the same starting point of football as played at rugby school, as described in Tom Brown's school days. The game started to develop along its own national lines quite quickly. Um, and a lot of these, what's the, the other thing that's really fascinating is that a lot of the ideas about how to play the game crop up in different places. So initially, the idea that you can bounce the, that you have to bounce the ball in front of you, like as uh, players in Australian rules do, that was also trialed in America as well. Uh, I think Princeton tried tried playing under those type of rules at one point. The idea that there are, uh, which is uh, one of the central points of American football, there are four downs. Well, that type of idea was later introduced into rugby league. It has now has the equivalent of six downs. Um, so there's a kind of interchangeability. It's, there's almost a, not quite global because it's basically the English-speaking world at the time. But there's almost a global discussion about how do we play rugby going on in the 19th century that results in these, you know, in the development of uh, half a dozen different games that can all trace their roots back to rugby school in the 1850s and 1860s.
0: So you point out in, in looking at uh, rugby's development in the 19th century, you you point out that as the game spread in England, uh, it eclipsed association football. It eclipsed soccer in terms of of popularity among fans and players.
1: Yeah, initially in the first uh, in the first couple of decades as the um, from the 1860s, uh, the, the Rugby Football Union, the governing body in England, was founded in 1871, um, which is uh, eight years after the Football Association was founded in 1863 but the, um, the rugby game became the more popular of the two, two types of football uh, up until the 1880s partly again because of this link with muscular Christianity and Tom Brown's school days and the the importance that rugby school itself had to educational uh, practice uh, in, in Britain at the time so uh, rugby school was a model school for uh, private schools in England and so they would adopt rugby because that was a game that rugby school played as well but it's quickly became but the, the impact of Tom Brown's school was, I think can't be underestimated um, sorry, can't be overestimated because the, um, it was a huge runaway success it was literally the Harry Potter of its day and, in fact, the, the story is actually very similar to Harry Potter uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and that meant that people would read the book, and the first major event in the book is this really exciting description of the match that Tom Brown plays once he arrives at the school. And we can, we can see from contemporary... Uh, Letters and newspaper capsules of the way that clubs were formed. This is one of the motivating factors in getting people to play, getting young men to play to play rugby in opposition to, uh, in contrast to other sports. And so, by the time uh, you get to the mid 1880s, um, it's clear that rugby is the more popular of the two games, and I think you can see that on an international level as well. But uh, the, um, the, the the rugby game uh, or the games derived from rugby are actually more popular on an international level at this period than soccer, which I think explains something about why soccer struggled uh, to get a foothold in the States. Um, but yeah, so by the time, by the time we get to the 1880s, there are bigger crowds going to watch Uh, major rugby matches in England than what they are going to watch the FA Cup final for example Um, and it's you know it's commonly reported in the press that the rugby game is the more popular of the two sports. not by a huge amount it's not it it doesn't have the it's not comparable to the dominance that soccer has in contemporary Britain but nevertheless it's still seen as the more popular code by the uh, uh, by those, by the press, and those uh, who are fans of, of sport.
0: So, what caused its popularity to fall behind soccer in England?
1: Um, that, I think this is a, this is a, an absolutely fascinating question. I think it's one that um, we haven't really paid enough attention to. It's because uh, I think it's it's very easy for us as historians to, oh, for anybody, for that matter to look at the state of uh, look at how sport is today and assume that it's always been like that and in fact it's like any other part of society sports ever and flow, they're subject to social forces to the um, to good decisions, to bad decisions about people trying to make history, you know, trying to develop their own history uh, but circumstances don't necessarily favour what they want to do um, but in the case of rugby versus soccer um, one of the as both of the sports became popular, it became clear that they were becoming commercialised entertainment and players were beginning to be paid, which cut against the grain of the muscular Christian tradition. Um, fears about professionals, uh, professional sportsmen were very prominent in British sports at that time because the, um, uh, the, the ethos the dominant ethos was that of amateurism and that one played the game for the love of the game not for any material reward although again this was another invention which I touched on slightly in the book but this is an, another invention of the mid-Victorian middle classes and sport before, previous to that had been uh, ruthlessly uh, professional and commercial but nevertheless the, the, by the time we get to the 1870s, 1880s it is assumed that good sport is always amateur sport But the the popularity of of the football codes and also cricket, in a different way, meant that working class players started to play the game. Big crowds came to watch the games, um, many of them coming from a working class background, and they expected that because they took time off work, they should be paid or at least compensated for taking that time off work. When they had a good performance, you know, there was often collections. Uh, for them in the crowd you know, if you score three goals or three tries uh, a hat would go around and there'd be a cl- an impromptu collection this was felt by the leaders of both soccer and rugby to be against the ethos of the game in soccer uh, things came to a head in the early 1880s and um, over the question of the um, uh, whether, players should be play- whether players who played in the FA Cup ties should be allowed to be paid. The FA said, no, we don't think this should happen. And they uh, uh, try- t- tried to insist on amateurism. However, the leading um, soccer clubs who were paying players said, well, no, we think we should be allowed to run our club in the way we see fit, where you know, we're running it as a business. And therefore, if we want to pay our players... Uh, we'll do so and if the football association doesn't like it we'll break away and form our own football association at which point the, A- the FA set back down and legalised professionalism in soccer under uh, strict condition but nevertheless allowed professional players that was in 1885 the same debate took place in rugby uh, And it came to a head in 1886, the year year after, about 18 months after the the FA had taken the decision to go professional, the rugby union had its annual general meeting where it discussed the issue. And the leads of rugby union uh, looked at the example of soccer and said, hang on a minute, what's happened since soccer legalised professionalism is that only those teams that employ professionals have been successful in the FA Cup um it, dra- professionals are driving out the uh, the university educated, the privately educated players and the teams made up of privately educated players. Um, and the professionals are dominating the game. We don't want that to happen in rugby. And so the rugby union took precisely the opposite tack and voted to make the game exclusively amateur, And uh, with the threat that anybody who had received money to play rugby or any club that paid money for its players would be expelled from the game. In in the commercial world, the commercial entertainment world of the 1880s and 1890s, it gave soccer a huge advantage. Uh, It developed very rapidly. Uh, Three years after the decision to to legalise professionalism, it introduced a league system. The Football League was formed. Um, and that meant that soccer had this structure in place where it had leagues so teams could be followed up the leagues uh, t- t- uh, the the best teams would play the best teams every week it became a hugely attractive spectacle and uh, in terms of its popularity um, it It grew in a way that few other cultural phenomena grew in that period. So you go from a position where in the middle of the 1880s, you would get 10,000 people going to the FA Cup final. Within 15 years, by 1901, over 100,000 people went to watch the FA Cup final when Spurs played Sheffield United in 1901 rugby however, because it had gone, it refused to embrace professionalism, that also meant that it didn't allow league, a league system to be developed, it didn't allow uh, a national knockout cup competition to be developed because it felt they, that these were, um, would open the door to commercialism and they would weaken the grip of the um, of the university and privately educated clubs on the game. And so rugby started to fall back when compared to soccer because um, essentially teams played most of their games as as friendly matches there was no lead points at stake no cup competition at stake and so soccer had in a sense soccer had modernised much much quicker than than rugby in terms of the way it was organised and the way it was financed and so rugby started to fall back and then, of course, the, um, the biggest blow uh, took place in 1895 when rugby itself split into two sports precisely over the question of professionalism because the, the, the more commercially minded clubs, particularly those in the north of England, uh, wanted to, to pay their players. They didn't want professionalism. They wanted to, play, to pay compensation for uh, time taken off work, so-called broken time. Um, the rugby union refused to allow that in any way whatsoever because they felt it was the first step to professionalism, and eventually, their intransigence led to the game splitting into two in 1895. So you can see it was the it was the worst possible time for the game to, for rugby to go into such a deep crisis. Soccer was on a fantastic um, upward curve. And at the same time, rugby didn't have a national cup competition, didn't have any leagues, didn't have professional players, and it was split into two different competitions, well, not even two different competitions, two different league organisations that had nothing to do with each other. And so so, in those circumstances, soccer... um, uh, became the dominant game in Britain, and I think that was the uh, the impetus that it had to become the eventually to become the world's game, spread around the world in a way that no other sport has done. So rugby, though, like
0: soccer, does does spread. Uh, it spreads throughout the the British Empire, the formal empire, as well as the. The commercial empire, and and it's interesting in looking at rugby spread in the empire to see this dynamic of uh, of people saying, you know what, we're going to play this English sport. We respect the English. We have uh, our schools are modest, uh, modeled on on English ideas. What you see from rugby school and Tom Brown school days, uh, but we don't really like the English. So to show ourselves as equal to the English, we're going to we're going to play their sport and uh, and match them at it, and and we particularly see this. You do describe it in the book, uh, in South Africa, uh, when the Afrikaners adopt rugby.
1: Yeah, um, that's one of the really interesting, it's, it's kind of the law of unintended consequences is that because English rugby becomes so weak, so the English national the English national rugby union team loses half half of its players come from the northern clubs that break away to form uh, the rugby league. So the English national rugby union team is immeasurably weakened. And so by the time you get the, um, uh, the South African tourists coming over in 1906, and the year before that you get New Zealanders, um, they're able to beat the British at their own game. And I think it's easy, it's easy to, um, uh, to forget how important this is, particularly for the Afrikaners, because just five years previously they'd been fighting in the Anglo-South African War against the British, and, uh, which is a war where the, basically the Afrikaners had fought the British to a standstill, uh, peace had, uh, a peace deal had been brokered, whereby the, the two, the English-speaking community and the Afrikaner community uh, were kind of, uh, well, obviously the black population was completely excluded, uh, but the English-speakers and the Afrikaners kind of had this modus vivendi where they would... Live separately, but within the same uh, within the same nation, govern jointly, um, and that's precisely what happened with the rugby. With the national rugby team, because they, um, when the 1906 team was selected, it was deliberately selected uh, almost on a half and half basis from the two communities. Again, no black players. Uh, the captain was an Afrikaner. Uh, the vice captain was English speaking. And so it represented, the in a, in, in a rugby team, it represented the, the political uh, deal that had been made after the, um, after the Boer War, that had finished just five years earlier. Um, and rugby became, what, one of the interesting things is that the Afrikaners didn't play rugby to any significant extent outside of the private schools until this period, um, in fact, the the game had probably been much more popular in the um, uh, in the black communities in South Africa than it had in the Afrikaner communities. Um, but because they could now beat the English on the on the rugby pitch, it gave the sport a tremendous um, a tremendous cachet. Amongst the, uh, amongst the Africana community. So by the time um, the South Africans come back and tour uh, Britain in 1912 and so by the time the 1912 tourists come back, the, the Rugby Tour to England is a huge, hugely important event in South African politics. Um, you know, reporters cover every every match and send their reports back uh, to South Africa. It's followed uh, in Parliament. It's a, it becomes very quickly a symbol of the of the South African nation, particularly the Afrikaners, because not only can the Afrikaners beat the English on in international rugby, they can also beat the, the English speakers within South Africa. And so it became a kind of double-edged uh, symbol of uh, what the Africanist community like to see as African superiority, both within South Africa and within the broader context of the, of the British Empire as well. And, that, and, and that's kind of replicated in New Zealand as well, the ability to beat the, beat the British, as was done very comprehensively by the 1905 uh, all-black New Zealand group of tourists, was very important to New Zealand identity uh, You know, they, they felt themselves to be a very small country very far away from the, what they called the mother country and the, 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 and the farthest riches of the empire but the fact they could beat the British at their own game gave them a tremendous sense of self-confidence and the other place where this was true was Wales um, the the Welsh I can't remember the precise figures but I think the Welsh beat the English almost 10 times uh, I think maybe they, before 1910, I think the English only won once and one game was drawn after the split. So, in, in the space of almost 15 years, the Welsh beat England almost every year. And again, for an, a, a nation that was newly developing, as it was industrializing very quickly in the early 1900s, um, uh, rugby became very important because it was a way of demonstrating the, the vitality of the Welsh nation because of the fact it could beat the English now what would have happened if English hadn't have split and the England team would have remained united and still very strong what impact that would have had if it wasn't so easy to beat the English on the South Africans or the New Zealanders or the Welsh is, is, is quite an interesting question but uh, um, that, that's speculation that's, for, that's, mm-hmm. that's not for historians I don't think yeah yeah yeah
0: so, Tony, something you do in the book, and, and I really enjoyed this, is, uh, uh, I mean, this is a, a, a complete tour of the rugby playing world that uh, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, Romania, France, Italy, uh, and, but then you also you write about rugby union and rugby league, and, and I want to ask you, knowing that, as you said earlier, that you grew up with, with rugby league. Um, you you talk about rugby league in the mid 1990s as at a uh, at a turning point. Uh, rugby league had more commercial success than it had ever seen uh, in the, in the 1990s, and yet you write its its very existence was in jeopardy. So so can you talk about the situation that faced league at that point, and and what has happened in the sport since then?
1: Um- in the mid 1990s, Rugby League became very popular, particularly in Australia, uh, but also to a lesser extent in, in Britain. And um, that coincided, although it wasn't apparent at the time, um, but that coincided with the, with the beginnings of the growth of, uh, of satellite TV, of digital pay TV. And the The biggest property in pay TV in Australia, which because of the dominance of Rupert Murdoch's TV network and Kerry Packer's TV network, the biggest sporting property was the National Rugby, well, it was called the Australian Rugby League at the time. And a war developed in 1995 over who would control rugby league in Australia, who would televise it, and essentially who would televise it, but because of the amount of money involved, then who would control it? Was it going to be Kerry Packer's TV network? And it was Packer who had revolutionized cricket in the 1970s with the introduction of World Series cricket, which had also split cricket. Or was it going to be Rupert Murdoch who controlled the Sky TV network, Fox in the States and Sky TV in uh, in the UK? Um, and they both threw millions and millions of dollars at it. And eventually two competitions... Uh, were formed, one allied to Packer, one allied to, um, uh, to Murdoch. And the sport went from being a, uh, uh, what appeared to be an unassailable uh, position as a commercial success, to being something that uh, was divided into, not simply in plain terms, but also in terms of the depth of anger, And fury at the other side was probably hadn't been replicated since the 1895 split between union and league, and eventually, um, uh, well, Rupert Murdoch signed up the British Rugby League and also some other uh, smaller rugby leagues around the world. So, um, so Murdoch controlled most of rugby league by the by the mid 1990s, and it put the game in a tremendous it put the game in tremendous jeopardy for two reasons one because the intense basically civil war had broken out and so and you can still see the scars from that to their people there are still people who talk to someone or are very suspicious to someone because they supported the other side in the what became known as the Super League War because uh, Murdoch's organized Murdoch's competition was called Super League um Uh, But it also meant that, in a sense, rugby league, which had always prided itself on being a people's game, on being uh, a a democratic game, an open game, uh, you know, uh, a working people's game, Uh, rugby league was suddenly being completely transformed. It was a game of where players uh, could conceivably become millionaires, and it it, it appeared to have lost its roots and lost touch with its roots. It was now a plaything of rich billionaires. And so that had a um, that had a, a debilitating effect, not simply on the the organisation of the game, but also on the, the culture of the game, the way it saw itself. And um, in uh, and de- uh, uh, one of the interesting things um, was that it almost led to um, it was almost like a political divide. And so in Sydney. Um, the South Sydney team which is which is now a, a global brand thanks to Russell Crowe's ownership of the team and their more recent success South Sydney were kicked out of the competition because they were a financial basket case. 80,000 people demonstrated in the middle of Sydney in, in support of South Sydney coming, being allowed back in the competition it was the biggest demonstration that had been seen in Sydney since the Vietnam War um, on a lesser scale in Britain the P- uh, Super League proposed that teams should merge, and so you know, so give, to, to, to give an example from my my hometown, that Hull and Hull Kingston Rovers should merge, which is you know the equivalent of saying Manchester United <laughs> and Manchester City should merge. it's insane, and pe- people demonstrate against it, and it was like. A, um, it was almost—it almost became a substitute for for something else, for for people's anger and frustration about what had happened to the industrial north of England, uh, where rugby league is predominantly based. It, it almost became a um, uh, a substitute uh, rugby league and protesting about what had happened in rugby league in Australia, New Zealand, and and Britain became almost a a substitute for something else, a a protest against the way the world was going um, in terms of globalisation, the destruction of traditional industries and traditional communities and things like that. Um, The other problem that the game had was obviously that rugby union went professional and one of the, for for the previous century, rugby league had, had an advantage in that it was a professional game. Whereas rugby union was an amateur game, and so um, if a player wanted to make money from their uh, from their rugby talents, um, if they played rugby union, quite often they would switch to play rugby league, where they could, you know, they, they could they could make money in a way that they couldn't, or at least openly they could make money in a way that they couldn't in amateur rugby union. Once rugby union went professional, as it did in 1995. Um, rugby league lost that advantage and so it, 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 it lost access to a, uh, to a lot of players and it kind of also lost the moral high ground because the, the big thing that um, the big criticism that people in rugby league would make of rugby union and people in other spots too was that rugby union was hypocritical it pretended to be amateur yet players derive all sorts of benefits and advantages from the game, um, monetary and otherwise, and uh, you know this was a form of hypocrisy. Um, once Union went open and allowed professionalism, then the sort of moral high ground disappeared. So so League underwent a kind of very strange, uh, underwent this process of kind of reassessing itself and saw many of its traditional uh, well, shibboleths I guess, in, uh, in, in some ways, were undermined by what had happened both internally to the game at that point but also externally with the changes that had taken place to Rugby Union.
0: So right now, Tony, here in the states, the uh, the fastest growing sport at, at universities and colleges in terms of participation is is women's rugby. So rugby began, as you talked about, women, rugby began as part of uh, uh, muscular Christianity. It spread as a game to build manly virtue. And, uh, and as you write about, women were not allowed to play rugby for decades in, in the 20th century. So, so looking at the recent advance of, of women's rugby, what has brought the change to allow its acceptance? And, uh, and I'll also ask, uh, do you see, uh, still see resistance in some areas to the idea of women playing rugby?
1: Um, well, to answer the second part first, yeah, I think there's a, um, women a new player will be still subject to a lot of a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, stereotypes, whether it's un, unspo- largely unspoken now because it's not um, because these things don't necessarily. It, it's not seen as being politically correct to, to say these things, but certainly I know from. Uh, yeah. Uh, from things that I've heard that it's, you know, women's rugby is still stereotyped as being uh, a uh, uh, as as a game that's played by women who are not really women, and, and all the usual rubbish that you get about women playing sports that are seen as male sports are still there. Having said that, then obviously women's rugby has made tremendous advantages and in a sense it's it's probably after the legalization of professionalism in nineteen ninety-five. It's probably the most significant change that rugby has undergone um, sin, over the last uh, thirty or forty years. It has the potential to change the game. Whether it will. I'm not so sure because I think the other thing that's interesting is that the that women's rugby has adopted many of the cultural practices of men's rugby union. Uh, there is women's rugby league is also played; it's, it's much smaller, but again, it's growing in a similar way. Um, but one of the interesting things about the way that women's rugby develops it's it's, it's a child of although there was there was a, a small amount played. In the 1920s, particularly in France, where there was actually a women's league uh, of women's rugby at one point in the 1920s. It faded before the end of the decade, unfortunately. Um, One of the interesting things that um, that has happened is that the the beginnings of women's rugby, like a lot of women's sport, was uh, really a consequence of the 1960s and the changes that occurred in society. In women's position in society and the growth of the women's liberation movement helped to raise the raise these questions about well why can't women play? Um, but it was it's also the case I think quite interesting, and this is uh, that um, the game the women's game became stronger much more quickly in places that where where rugby traditionally wasn't the, the dominant male sport. So, in the USA, uh, which is, I think, really, you could say, is the cradle of the modern uh, women's game. It emerged in colleges in the 1970s, grew in the 1980s, and the, women, the, the USA women's team, it's still very strong, but was particularly strong in the 1990s when the, when the Women's World Cup was first played for in 1991, the, the American uh, women won the game. Um, so, in a sense, it was helped by the high degree, well, again, it's, it's uh, the high degree of um, uh, sporting facilities available to uh, women in American college sport, um, thanks to Title IX, but also uh, because they didn't have the same difficulties in playing rugby that women, in the traditional women's, uh, in the traditional uh, sorry in the traditional rugby playing countries would have had where the game is seen as a marker of masculinity and a, and something that men do to prove that they 're really men um, and so in the states and other countries such as Holland uh, and some of the other European countries where rugby wasn 't as dominant, it became much more attractive because they didn 't have to put up with all the, 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 all, all the all the old male chauvinist rubbish. that that was prevalent in uh, in the most traditional male rugby playing countries. Um, The way that the game spread over the last 10 or 15 years partly through to its inclusion in the Olympics um, but also partly through to the fact due to the fact that the um, World Rugby, the governing body of international rugby, union has put a lot of results into it. Um, it's it's been tremendous. So the, the World Cup is being held in Ireland this year. Uh, there are twelve teams. Um, the standard of play is very high, and certainly the last World Cup, uh, the England Canada uh, final, um, demonstrated that you know that uh, um, just what an exciting spectacle the game can be, um, and that. Quality level is spread quite evenly amongst uh, 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 amongst many of the major women uh, national women's teams. Um, interestingly enough, the uh, uh, the New Zealanders after the Americans dominated in the nineties, the New Zealanders dominated. And it, uh, although England won the last World Cup, um, and so it's it's almost now as if it's it's much more of a. Uh, um, uh, it's 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 a tournament that that's not really as predictable as what it once was, and in a sense, I think the women's World Cup is probably less predictable uh, than the men's World Cup when where only four teams have ever won the, the men's uh, Rugby Union World Cup. Um, Whereas in the women 's game I don't think you can say anybody's the favorite in the same way that New Zealand uh, will be in the um, two thousand and nineteen men 's World Cup i don't think you say anybody's the, the 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 dominant favorites or the dominant team in the same in in, in the women 's game as as what it is as what there is in the men 's game.
0: So, Tony, we're almost out of time, and uh, as I said at the start, you you describe a number of historic matches throughout the book, and you said you were were able to watch quite a few of them on on YouTube. And and I'll ask, which which match do you wish you could have seen in person that you describe in the book?
1: It would have to be a rugby league game. The classic one is the 1914 uh, third test match between Britain and Australia in Sydney when the test – it was a three-match test series – the series was tied at one match each and due to a well, basically due to the Australian authorities wanting to cash in they decided to play the deciding test match a week after the second test match so there was no time room for a rest, lots of players injured uh, and the British said, no, no, we're not, we don't want to play it." they were told that they had to play uh, they, they had no choice and so they reluctantly took to the field and they within the space of um, 30 minutes they lost three players injured they were playing 10 men against 13 men of Australia Uh, it got even worse in the second half somebody else had to go off they were down to nine men and they still won the match 14 points to 6. Nine men against 13. Uh, it's gone down in history as one of the greatest ever rugby league test matches. And, I, and you know, looking at a broader scale, it's one of the great matches of any football code that ever took place. So if I had one match to be at, um, it, it, it would have been at that match because I think that, that sums up everything Uh, about everything that's the the full potential of rugby it's about individual bravery heroism, great skill great excitement commitment, teamwork everything that you want in a sport I think was was at that match Uh, and you read the report and people still talk Still talk about it today. It's the number of times that you see features about it. It's still it still lives on uh, in the collective memory of rugby league people. And and hopefully one of the things I've hoped to do with the book is that it'll bring stories like that to people who haven't uh, looked at the other code of rugby. So it'll bring stories of great daring, do and heroism uh, from Ruby union for rugby league people, and vice versa. Um, So if if it's done that, then I'm pleased with the outcome of the book.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Tony Collins about his book, The Oval World, A Global History of Rugby, published in 2015 by Bloomsbury. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and biography, popular music, and more. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subjects you are interested in. If you like what you heard here, please follow us on Twitter at newbookssports.com or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash new books and sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.